the Backpage Football Podcast. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. When the seagulls follow Chora, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. And do I say okey-doke all the time? You do. I don't even say it all the time. You say it about, say, 15 times in the programme. <laughs> People are telling us this is a great day for Irish football. It's not difficult to get Trapatoni if you're going to pay him that amount of money. I'll tell you, it's a great day for his accountants and his bankers. I can't believe it. Football, by the hell. BBF. Hello and welcome to this week's Tree the Back podcast brought to you by BackpageFootball.com where we try to make sense of the Premier League and topics that matter most to us. I'm joined as always by Phil Green and Enda Higgins. How are you lads? How are you doing? How are you Enda? How's it going? So this week the Premier League was back in full swing after the final international break before next March. We'll be taking a quick look at matters at the top and the bottom of the table. As well in true Irish football fashion it managed to stay in the news for a little bit longer than we would have liked with this video clip played to the players ahead of the England game last week that came to surface. So we'll try to make a little bit of sense of that. But first, lads, the absolutely devastating news today that the great Diego Maradona has passed away at just 60 years of age at his home in Tigre. The reaction um, and the outpouring of emotion and, and sadness shortly after the news filtered through kind of showed just how much of a beloved character he was the world over. Um, I mean, if you knew anything about football, you knew who Maradona was. Many listeners would have watched him growing up. Um, for others, he would have been the first player you would have heard of as you got into football. This kind of mythical creature that many described as, as the greatest ever. Um, a truly incredible player who transcended the game unlike anyone before him. The man synonymous with Argentina and South American football. Um, a troubled soul, of course, which has been well documented over the recent years. But I think if there's one thing about Maradona, whether you were watching him growing up or you had, you know, to familiarize yourself through books and stories um, and videos, is he was never boring. Um, even up until the last years, whether he was sitting in his manager's throne um, or giving the Nigerian fans the middle finger at the uh, the 2018 World Cup, he was he was just an amazing character up until. Um, the last minute, um, and I, re- I read um, Angels with Dirty Faces recently by Jonathan Wilson, um, and it kind of it, it described how, you know, ever since the football was introduced there and for decades before Maradona came on the scene, that Argentina had kind of created this identity of, of what a hero or a footballing hero should look like, um, kind of El Pibe, he was known as a kind of a little urchin boy with ragged clothes and a dirty face and really you know decades later Maradona fulfilled that prophecy um, and went on to be the greatest of all time arguably Um, Phil I don't know if you've you've anything to add to to what a a huge loss it is to to football today yeah just just to echo your your sentiments Kev really I mean like very quickly after the news started to filter through from 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 Argentina uh, my my timeline anyway was just awash with tributes to him. I mean, pictures, videos, stories. And um, what really shone through is how much he means to football, to South America, to Argentina specifically, to Napoli um, and Naples. I mean, like he he means he meant so much to so many people. Um, like you, Kev, I I wasn't around when he was not even in his pomp. I mean, I think the most famous thing he did after my birth was get 
uh, done for drugs at the 94 World Cup. So we definitely didn't see him in his pomp, but you were absolutely aware of him as a football fan. I think the way you described him, that kind of mythical creature, I think was probably the best way to sum it up. He was kind of the byword for the, for the best. Um, he, like, he was just this kind of this kind of special spirit almost. Um, and like you see it, the clips that are going around. I mean, the joy. I I've never seen somebody's warm-up videos be lauded as much as Maradona's are because they are just fun. They're instinctive. They're the way he played the game. Um, uh, uh, there's an excellent piece that Brian Phillips wrote for The Ringer last year to coincide with Asif Kapadia's documentary about Maradona. I heavily recommend the documentary, but the, the piece is excellent. And Phillips makes the point that the two most famous goals in football history were scored by the same player in the same match four minutes apart. And that was Maradona in the 96, oh, sorry, in the 86 uh, quarterfinal against England, the hand of God and the goal of the century. Um, it's kind of remarkable to think about a sport that has the longevity of football, the, the legends and heroes that football has, that if you were to ask to name the most two famous goals that were ever scored, you probably would come up with those two scored by one man, little five foot five street urchin from uh from Ashanti town. He scored them four minutes apart. Yeah, an incredible career. And you know, Phil mentioned his height there, and I think that's very relevant. We have to remember that this was an age where football was at a, a far more physical state than it is now, where players could pretty much get away with anything, especially in Italy. Um, you know, you think of the protection that players have nowadays, whereas Maradona five foot five to go to Italy in the mid eighties and succeed against those type of defenders um, was really a phenomenal achievement. And for me, dragging Napoli to the Scudetto is up there with what he did in Mexico in 86. And you've mentioned the clips that are doing the rounds today, but what's actually one I saw in the last few weeks uh, plenty of times is his complete montage from Mexico in 86. And it was staggering just how many chances he created for teammates that ended up missing. So it's probably the most inspirational performance in a tournament from a captain in terms of start to finish that we'll probably ever see. And it kind of puts the kind of pressure that Messi is under now into some context. You kind of think it's almost unrealistic for Argentina to expect him to drag them through every uh, tournament. They've seen it before, done once. So that's, you know, that's why the number 10 shirt does weigh so heavy. And I suppose there's this kind of, you know, attraction to a flawed genius, you know. Um, you, you think of Tindulka, Michael Jordan, etc., Cristiano Ronaldo, they're all kind of masters of their trait, but they they were perfect at what they did, whereas Maradona was just so flawed from start to finish and how he lived his life that it was almost a miracle that he made it to 60, really. I mean, we've only heard some of the stories about what he was involved in in Napoli in terms of, you know, his private life, etc., the mafia. So, I mean, to produce what he was able to do on the football pitch in that period of time was phenomenal. And I mean, his goal scoring record in Spain with Barcelona and previously with Boca Juniors as well was was very underrated. And he was kind of the fall guy for what happened um, in that uh, Copa del Rey final. I felt if you actually watched the clips back, a lot of Barcelona players went kung fu <laughs> at the end of it. But it was Maradona who got all the blame. So, you know, that's what happens when you are slightly flawed. But I think that made him, you know, somebody said today he's the real people's champion. And I think that sums him up the best, you know, the the tributes across Naples, his his face all over the kind of streets um, and painted on buildings. And I don't think we'll ever see a character like him again. And it, sorry, and just slightly poetic as well that it's 15 years after George Best died today. So, I mean, two of the great flawed characters in football dying on this date is, is you know, a bit sentimental as well. It's amazing coincidence. Um, and you mentioned his impact in, in Naples specifically and, 
it it like at the time it was pretty unprecedented for a side of Naples of Napoli's ca- caliber to win a Serie A. Like nowadays, you know, you, you might compare to Leicester winning the Premier League or something like that. But at the time, it was such a huge achievement um, in, in Serie A, which, uh, you know, it was kind of in, in such a, a huge era for, for the Italian league. Um, and I saw a, a picture today um, that soon after the, they won the first um, Scudetta in Italy, uh, the fans hung a banner, a banner, outside of a graveyard that um, that just said, "You don't know what you've missed," um, just kind of you know, and not uh, how good Maradona is and what he has achieved here. And Phil, I think you've read Angels with Dirty Faces as well. And you know, we you all, we all know how much of a flawed character he is. But mm. you know, one takeaway I took from that book was just not only the pressure of, of an entire nation on top of him, but there were, there were so many people expecting so much from him there were so many people pulling and dragging out of him whether he was in Europe um, in Napoli um, or back home in Argentina like it's hard to fathom just how much um, expectation and more often than not like he delivered and winning the World Cup in 1986 after a couple of close calls beforehand um, it just kind of goes to show that he he was, you know, to use a kind of a modern sports phrase, he was clutch. Like when you needed a goal or an assist, he was there to deliver it. And I think it, because none of us have really lived during his uh, his time, it's hard to kind of comprehend just how good he was. And, you know, statistically, he might not have been up there with Leo Messi or he might not have won a handful of Champions League, but his impact on the game at the time was just was just second to none. Onto the football this weekend and we'll chat briefly about Liverpool's 3-0 win against Leicester. And Enda, you sent a message into the group chat early on saying Liverpool had been stunning so far. I think it was about 30 or 40 minutes yeah. into the game. Um, I think it was actually earlier. You, could, have, could have been earlier. Yeah. Um, what, what did you see there that maybe Liverpool hadn't been doing, I suppose, this side of, of the title win? Uh, I just think what's incredible about them, and I think this is where Klopp has really come into his own in terms of what he's done behind the scenes, is that no matter who they pick, they're able to play the same way. And I think they're probably the only team in Europe who could do that. You know, when you look at the fact that they're missing, obviously, um, their best centre-back, or maybe their two best centre-backs, obviously, uh, Keita, Thiago, Salah. And then to just play Leicester off the park in that first half the way they did with the press, the precision in their passing, the chances they created, the pressure they were able to put them under. The control they had of the match from start to finish was just, for me, staggering. I'm, I'm thinking about United when we miss, you know, a handful of players and, you know, everything just seems to fall apart when somebody else tries to slot in. And and plenty of other teams as well, in fairness. It's not a criticism of United. It's, uh, it's just how impressed I am with what Klopp's been able to do. I mean, this is going back to even the, the semi-final against Barcelona where Origi and Shaqiri came in um, for uh, Firmino and Salah, I think it was at the time. And Liverpool were just able to play the same way. So I think for me, it's just staggering how they're able to continue to do this, no matter how many players they're missing. I mean, I was looking through their injury list this evening and I forgot how many players, good players were actually out. You know, Shakiri is out as well. Thiago, Keita, etc. Um, and you still have so much confidence that they're going to be able to still persist with the high press, still complete the passes that they need to do, you know, Fabinho can slot into centre-back, you know, Origi has filled in brilliantly whenever he's been required, probably not as impressive as he was two seasons ago, but still gets plenty of goals. Uh, Shakiri always delivers when he's called upon. So I just think to have a squad that delivers so often um, 
regardless of who's playing. Uh, they really, you know, took a good Leicester side apart. Um, I thought this was really a good chance for Leicester to show what they're about this season. You know, a bit like the City match where they were able to to deliver that day, but they didn't get near them, to be honest. Um, and I think it was a huge statement from Liverpool on Saturday evening. Um, and I think they're really going to be tough to beat this season. Phil, um, a lot of the pre-match hype was on Diogo Jota and how he's going to kind of slot, slot in with, with Mo Salah out especially, but um, Bobby Firmino kind of clawed back some of his... Uh, his hype um, with this performance here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I, I said on Twitter after the game, I thought it was probably Firmino's best game of the season and you could probably go further back than that. Um, like, the, my problem with Firmino this season hasn't been that he hasn't been scoring goals because it's not what his game is built on as much as we've heard that. It's the truth. What's been the problem with Firmino is because he's not dependent on goals, he is dependent on all the other stuff he does. So the clever link-up play, uh, the balls into Salah and Mane and now Jota, um, just being a focal point from deep for that Liverpool side and a creative hub. He hasn't been that this season. He's nearly been a wall. The ball's been bouncing back off him too often. His touch has been off. It was on point on Saturday night. I thought he was great. Um, I think he, he, like it, that kind of touch, that clever way to pass, everything was back from Firmino. He also made a mess of three quite good chances and scored the most difficult one he got, which is, again, quite typical for Firmino, but it probably would have hurt a little bit if he hadn't scored just because he'd laid down such a good evening's work. So to have a tangible reward for that was quite nice. But yeah, absolutely, the, the best performance he's put in uh, for Liverpool this season and um, quite timely because he was he was starting to come under a bit of pressure. The better Jota plays uh, and knowing that Salah and Mane are there as well, Firmino started to feel a little bit odd, like the odd man out, but he... He absolutely um, showed why he's really important to Liverpool on Saturday night or Sunday. Yeah, what surprised me earlier in the season about Firmino, and this could be the pressure that Jota is putting on him, I think he was making far more selfish decisions than he had done in the last couple of seasons. There was certainly one that sticks in my mind was it was about 1-1 against City with about 20 minutes to go. He got the ball at the edge of the box and there was a perfect chance to clip it to the back post. Um, and he took a shot and it went way over. And it was just something that he wouldn't have done in the last few seasons. His decision-making is is one of the best in the Liverpool team. And I think that's why he's been so valuable. Not just his his work ethic, you know, his link-up play is good as well, but he, he usually makes the right decision more often than not. And I felt that was really letting him down this season. Um, he'll always miss chances, but, you know, Liverpool can afford that with the quality that they have either side of him. But, um, you know, if that selfishness disappears from his game again, I think it'll be a huge asset again. Let's search quickly on the bottom half of the table um, for a minute. Uh, and specifically, Sheffield United, who are really struggling so far. Just one point in nine games. They're struggling to score goals. Um, and obviously, we have that Irish interest there with Stevens, Egan um, and McGoldrick prior to his recent retirement so ideally we want them doing well and staying in the Premier League but um, what do you think has gone wrong for them so far? Yeah ahead of this I was looking up their results from last season and you look at some of the wins they had at home Chelsea, Arsenal, Spurs etc they were really very solid at home and they always felt like a team who always had their best 11 out and you look at this season you know Ramsdale has come in and he's not quite at the same level as Dean Henderson. Enda Stevens missed his first game at the weekend uh, in three seasons in the league. Uh, Jack O'Connell has been a big miss. So I think kind of injuries have caught up to them a bit. Um, and I just don't think they have the same organization or belief that they did last season. Last season was almost like a free hit for them. They they didn't really sign many players. Sander Berger was probably their biggest one and he came in January. And in fairness, he's done quite well at Sheffield United. 
they were the only team in the top nine to finish on without a positive goal difference. They had a zero goal difference last season. So we knew they were never battering teams off the pitch. They were on a very tight wire. Um, and I think the balance has just shifted a bit too much the other way in terms of, you know, conceding unlucky goals, not having the flair that they did have last season from the wingbacks, especially. Um, their strikers are kind of better than the sum of their parts. You know, they're a better group together than they are individually. So I think they've really struggled to just kind of find that freedom um, and solidity that they had last season. Um, even at Chelsea, when they went 1-0 up, you kind of felt that it was inevitable that they could, they would concede a few goals, whereas just didn't have that last season. Um, all right, they did have the occasional match last season that didn't go their way at the back, but they were very solid overall in that 3-5-2. And I think teams have just figured that out a little bit more, that if you can stop their fullbacks going forward and put that back three under a bit more pressure, um, that they don't have enough quality strikers up front to hurt you consistently. So it's tough to keep winning games 1-0 all the time or by one goal like they were doing last season. Um, but I didn't expect this type of Ipswich Town disparity that we saw a couple of decades ago where they finished in the top five or six and then got relegated. So um, it's been a bit of a shock for me, but I, I just think managing the squad has been a bit more difficult for them this season and those few injuries have really cost them. Um, like Enda, I was trying to wrap my head around what's changed for Sheffield United between last season and this, and I, I, I had a quick look at their XG. Now, I don't want to scare anyone off, but too much talk about it. But <laughs> last year, basically, right, they should have scored about 50 or 51 goals, and they scored 39. And they should have conceded about 54 or 55, and they only conceded 39. So they way underperformed what the goals they should have scored, but they also did much better at not conceding the amount they should have. And this year, basically, they're conceding the amount that they are that they should. They're giving up better chances than they did last year, and they're letting the goals in. So last year, in a defensive sense, whether it be Dean Henderson, uh, the, the system they played, or a combination of both, they ended up doing a lot better than they should have done by the chances they gave up, basically. Whereas this year, it's they're giving up better, better quality chances in the first instance, and then they're not being saved uh, by Ramsdale. So like Enda was saying... Um, the defensive solidity that was there last season and that kind of tightrope they were walking, which is borne out by, by XG that they were give, that they were giving up better chances than they ended up conceding, has sort of gone the other way on them. Um, they're also only they're only creating chances about as well as last season and scoring them less. So they're they're fading at both ends of the pitch. Uh, I think there's a lot to what Enda said. Maybe teams have started to figure them out a little bit. Um, a system like that that came up that was quite unusual. And Sheffield United being a club that didn't have a massive profile for international managers or non-English managers in the Premier League might have taken them by a slight bit of surprise and kind of took a bit of, bit of time to get used to playing them. They've played everyone in the league twice now already from obviously last season. So um, that kind of element of surprise has gone a little bit. And when you're walking that tightrope where you're overperforming, you're XG'd or at one end or the other, the chances are it's going to revert closer to the mean. And that's happened to them now. Um, the worry for me is that it's not even like they're it's, sorry not to worry the, the only positive is that they are still creating chances and they're being unlucky and not scoring them so they might be able to turn it around but they need to tighten up that defence because at the rate they're conceding it's not going to be enough to pull them out yeah I think the other thing as well is you know their big signing Rian Brewster that he really needs to hit the ground running and he hasn't and I think that's been a killer for them I mean I think they can accept that McBurney, McGoldrick, etc. 
you know, we're never going to get them 50 to 20 goals in the league that se- this season. Um, and I think Wilder was well aware of that. And in fairness, Brewster was probably the highest profile striker, certainly in the league that they could have gone for. I mean, I talked a few weeks ago about his good form in preseason. He had a great loan spell last season in the championship. So for me, he was the type of striker that could have gone into Sheffield United um, and really done well for them, considering the chances they do create. Um, but unfortunately, at this moment, it hasn't worked out. Now, again, we're only nine games in, so they only need a good run to climb back up the table. I mean, Fulham, even though they're, they're a few points ahead of Sheffield United, look gone already to me, as far as I'm concerned. Just the way they're playing is just very doom and gloom. So they're really only fighting against sort of two or three other teams to stay in the league. Um, so it could just be one of those situations, a bit like Villa last year, where if they do survive by the skin of their teeth, we could see them bounce back well next season. But it's been a very tough start for them. Uh, and I didn't expect it to be this difficult. Before we move on to Oliver um, and Chelsea, I, think, I suppose we'll have a, a quick word on the story that popped up in the news last Friday evening um, regarding the Irish team, whereby a video Stephen Kenny put together um, that he showed the players ahead of the England friendly, um, supposedly showing you know some some goals against England in the past, like Ray Houghton's goal, um, and some historical moments, I suppose, further back um, between Ireland and England uh, during the the War of Independence, um, and this it, it was either taken offence by, as of now, a still unknown member of the dressing room, or else, if you want to be a bit more conspiracy theorist, it was taken by someone who uh, saw this as an opportunity to, to damage Kenny um, in the eyes of the FAI or the wider fan base, especially since it was given to a, a British newspaper, um, the Daily Mail. Um, Phil... I'm I'm not sure what you made of it, but to me, straight away, it seemed like an absolute non-story from the get-go. Um, and the latest statement from the FBI seemed to to back that up. Yeah, it, it seemed pretty quickly like a, a storm in a teacup and something that, that maybe didn't warrant the initial attention it got. Um, it, it's been messy, though. and like Stephen Kenny could definitely have done without it. I know people were saying that this could end up working in his favour if people rally around him, but... Uh, he didn't do anything wrong as evidenced by the FAI speaking to a number of players and coaching staff and none of them having a, a complaint to make, but just that kind of controversy stirred up and just another, another stick on the fire of, of what's been going on. He probably could have done without it. It, fe- it feels like a non-story. The FAI have investigated it, found nothing wrong. It sounds to me like one of the players might've said something to an agent or a journalist friend and it ended up being written up the way it was. Um, if not, there's a player in the squad who's not happy with the way Stephen Kenny's communicating, but it wasn't put forth to the FAI, if you know what I mean. So, like, I can see absolutely why it would be conspiratorial that they, they, that there could be something funny afoot. I think it might be slightly more innocent and slightly more mundane and boring than that. Um, and, like, hopefully we can just park it and move on because um, the last thing anyone really needs is talks of like McCle- James McLean on, on, on Twitter talking about touts getting touts out and a rat emoji um, I don't think we're in a position where we can ostracise anyone from the squad at the minute I think we need to circle the wagons as best we can um, and move on from like what was a pretty silly episode all told Yeah it's a weird one I mean Ireland against England montages are kind of par for the course I mean you look at any RTE intro to rugby or football or whatever it'll be it'll always have Ray Houghton and Keith Woods try or, or whatever any success we've had against England in the past 30 years you know it's kind of just part of the rivalry um 
but I suppose it is kind of interesting that you know it's come out at the time that it did where Kenny really didn't need this type of hassle from you know whether it's a member of the backroom staff or a member of the playing squad who has said something you know it just kind of it just kind of creates even more negativity around the squad at a time when they're probably at their lowest point anyways um in terms of you know what happened in the playoff and the subsequent games where we haven't scored a goal in what feels like a decade at this stage um so it was certainly something that wasn't needed and then if you give the british press an opportunity to do anything especially somebody like kelvin mckenzie who's had a field day with this you know they're going to take that opportunity but i think it's something that will be pretty easy for Kenny and the squad to move on from but yeah James McLean trying to find out rats or etc that <laughs> I think we can all do without that because there's enough there's enough drama in all of our lives without that kind of stuff happening as well but I just feel a bit sorry for Kenny you know what I mean he really needs a break yeah. just yeah. Uh, I was just praying that he would fluke a win in one of those friendlies at the end of um, uh, at the end of last month you know just to take some sort of pressure off himself so um, like we said in in the group there in the last few weeks you know we we have a clean start now next March um, and I think we'll see hopefully a bit of a rejuvenated Ireland and a rejuvenated Kenny I'm sure he's pretty wiped out from the last few months as well yeah so uh, I think it'll all be forgotten by then but just a bit unfortunate and a bit disappointing yeah the time the timing couldn't have been worse um, after those couple of nil alls um, and just you know if he was coming off a couple of wins I don't think it would have been um, an issue at all but you know the squad and I think the overall feeling with the Irish team was at such a low ebb um, coming off the end of the window just to add this to the to the file to the fire it really kind of took off um, but at, at the end of the day I don't think it was much of a, a story at all um, and I mean a lot of people were kind of questioning like you know why in this day and age do you need to show um, you know kind of a motivational video and I was kind of surprised to hear Lisa Fallon um, speaking on, on RT last night on the Champions League coverage that you know, she she worked pretty regularly with the Northern Irish team, putting together um, montages and you know motivational clips to get to get them going. So it, it still seems a part of a game, even though it might seem a little bit alien to, to people looking from the outside in. But um, especially coming up to an England game, and I know it was a friendly, and obviously the game itself, um, any evidence of, of a motivational video didn't seem to work. But <laughs> at, at the end of the day, um, anything you can do to, to kind of g your guys up. Um, and like you do, I do have a lot of sympathy um, for Kenny. And I mean, if, if the video managed to see the light of day, I think 98% of, of the nation would, uh, would would find it very, very tame. Um, and that was the impression I got from, from, from those who spoke out about it since. I'm Henry Rogers. I can remember his name. Rod Little. He died. He ran away and left his wife for a young And depends on the quality of the eggs. In the supermarket you have eggs class 1, class 2, class 3. And some are more expensive than others and some give you better omelets. So when, when the class 1 eggs are in Waitrose and you cannot go there. Real Madrid is not Barcelona, it's a small team, have many problems. I want my players play with balls.
We're joined by Oliver Herbert, the Chelsea correspondent at Football.London, to talk about the Blues start of the season so far. Hope you're well, Oliver. Very well. How are you? All good now. Um, so it's been a pretty decent start so far for Chelsea. They're third in the table um, and two points off the top. Their defensive woes from last year seem to have stopped for now with the equal best defensive record in the league. Um, the raft of new signings are, are quickly betting in. Um, and they're top and unbeaten in their Champions League group so far with a 2-1 win against Rennes on Tuesday night. Um, Oliver, have have things kind of turned a corner for Chelsea after moving on from Sarri and I suppose giving Lampard that year of, of the transfer embargo to, to find his feet as, as the manager of a big club? Yeah, absolutely. As you say, the transfer ban was was one element and then obviously losing Eden Hazard to Real Madrid was another one. Um you know, they were two big things to happen to a new manager who'd only had one year at championship level experience in charge. So it was always going to be tough last year. I mean, to be fair, you know, they had some very up and down moments, but to, to get Champions League football was the main was the main goal. And they managed to do that against more sort of settled sides, which was quite impressive. And and what you're seeing now is a team that have spent well in the summer. Uh really spent where they needed to as well, somewhere that Lampard was very keen to to spend money in and, and improve. And it's starting to come all good. I mean, it was always going to be a tough start to the season. They didn't have a pre-season. They only had one pre-season match where uh, Hakim Ziyech actually got injured as well. So that didn't help. Um, and, you know, it was always going to be difficult with the new, you know, signing is coming in. And, you know, there was the game at West Brom where they drew three all and Southampton where they drew as well. And, and it kind of looked like, well, had they actually improved from last season? But, you know, six wins in the ro- in a row. They they're really showing some good signs on both sides of the pitch, and I think it's fair to say that they are definitely going in the right direction. And uh, it seems like everything's kind of pretty rosy at the moment. I mean, we don't know how long it will last, but at the moment, it's looking pretty good for them. Today, the um, the FIFA nominees for best manager of twenty twenty were announced, and. There were questions in some quarters as to why Marcelo Bielsa was there ahead of so-and-so. Um, and one person mentioned Frank Lampard um, as, as having a, a better year than Bielsa did. Now, Lampard, I feel, depending on who you talk to, has become a bit of a, a kind of a Marmite character as a manager. Um, this time last year, he was getting so much praise for, for giving a chance to that, kind of, that core of young English players like Mount and Abraham. Um, but towards the end of the season then there was that instant on the sideline with Klopp um, there were the comments that he made saying he had to work exceptionally hard to be in his position when other people in football were kind of you know questioning the opportunities afforded to coaches um, particularly black coaches in England um, where, where would you say Lampard is on his coaching journey like have we seen between last year and the start of this season that there is evidence that he has the potential to be a great manager in football at a big club? Well, I think, I mean, where he is on his journey, I mean, he's he's completely at the beginning, really. I mean, you look at so many managers and that they spent a lot of time as like maybe an assistant like Arteta did or like John Terry's doing now at Aston Villa before they make that step into full-time, you know, first-team management. He didn't have that. He went from being, you know, learning his trade at Chelsea, doing the badges, kind of working a bit with the under-18s and Jody Morris when he was there at the time. He then, you know, was a pundit for BT Sport for most of his time. And then he got that job into Derby after a couple of different opportunities that almost came up for him. 
And then he went, obviously, from that that experience with Derby, getting them to the championship playoff final and losing to Aston Villa, and then going straight into one of the most high-profile jobs in, in world football. I mean, it's quite an incredible rise. You know, there were a couple of elements to it. The fact that, you know, if they didn't have a transfer ban, would they have gone to Frank Lampard to be the guy to replace Maurizio Sarri? Maybe not. Um, you know, is he going to get more time than others because he is a Chelsea legend? I think there is part of that definitely when it comes to the fans. But I think he's, you know, he's definitely got the intelligence for it. He's got the experience as a as a playing side as well. No doubt about it. You know, he's a Champions League winner. He's a multi-trophy winner with Chelsea. He knows the club inside out. He has the experience, as you say, with the younger players. You know, he knows them as do the backroom staff. You know, you've got Jody Morris, you've got Joe Edwards, who's another guy who's from the academy coach as well. Um, so, you know, he does have the ability to go on and be a very, very good coach. I wasn't ex- I wasn't surprised not to see him in that list, I have to say. You know, he's still very early days, but he definitely has the uh, the potential uh, and, you know, the knowledge if he gets the right guys around him as well to, to really go on and, and be a, a sort of a very, very top coach. Oliver, Enda here. Um, you mentioned a lot of new signings there in the summer. And whenever Chelsea do go on one of their spending sprees, you do think back to Abramovich's first summer where he seemed to buy half of Europe and the challenges that Ranieri had in integrating them all that season. How have you found Lampard has managed that this season and who's impressed you the most out of the new signings so far? Yeah, well, I think that they've that they've all done a pretty decent job. I'd say, you know, if you start from the back, I think the, the find of the summer probably is, is got to be Edouard Mendy, really, for, for what he's done so far since coming in. I mean, he's he's just looked so solid. I mean, obviously, goalkeeper position was a has been a really tough one. Kepper has not been what they would have expected. You know, they paid a lot of money for him as well, 71 million or something in that buyout clause um, when Thibaut Courtois left. So to have a goalkeeper come in and look so secure is just really impressive. I think Ben Chilwell has looked like he's been a Chelsea player for for years. I think, you know, he obviously was Premier League ready with his time at Leicester, but he's really coming and fitted well. And then, you know, Thiago Silva, we all wondered, uh, would a 36-year-old Thiago Silva really shine in the Premier League? He had that one big mistake against West Brom, but ever since then, he's hardly put a foot wrong. He's been quite incredible. So I actually think the defensive players have been more impressive than maybe the forwards, uh, which is quite something when you think about the money spent in those attacking options. I do think Kai Havertz is still finding his feet slightly and I think what we'll see now is him playing more in that midfield role, which he started playing before he got a tested positive for COVID. I think Timo Werner's had a very, very good start. I think he needs a rest a bit, though. He looked very tired, I thought, against Wren. And, you know, he's missed a couple of big opportunities. And he's just played a lot of games already for both Chelsea and Germany. And then Hakim Ziyech has come in and, and from his injury. And he's looked like he's going to be an absolute superstar, really, if he carries on the way he is. His vision and ability on the ball is incredible. So I think Lampard's done a good job. It wasn't easy at first. As I said, they didn't have a pre-season, which is where you would usually integrate the players and get them into what you want them to do. So it's very much as well with a busy schedule, just learning as they play really, rather than on the training pitch. And and you're really starting to see it all come together now. It's, uh, yeah, it really is quite impressive. In terms of their formation going forward, especially when Havertz comes back, because um, I mean, his best success at Leverkusen was actually at a fall, as a false nine. I expected him to play behind Werner once Chelsea had a settled team, but Werner's actually played better on the left-hand side than he has through the middle for Chelsea. Um, what do you expect their best formation to be going forward? Yeah, well, they started off in a in sort of four-two-three-one, but 
that was kind of a way of getting all this new attacking talent really into the team. I mean, you know, he started with Werner up top. He even played Hazvertz up top in one game. And then to be fair to Tammy Abraham, he's kind of come in and, and won his place back and deservedly so as well. He's actually been very, very good as the number nine, which has kind of forced that Werner going over to the left. Um, and I do think that the 4-2-3-1, while it was getting the attacking options in, it just... They just didn't have the balance in the side. They were too exposed in midfield. It would drag Kante and Jorginho out at times too wide and it didn't really help them. So he's gone back to the 4-3-3 and they looked so much more balanced. I think one of the big keys, I mean, you can talk about all the new signings, but the fact that Kante has been fit all season, uh, which they didn't have last year, he only played about half the games. And to have him in the base of a three in midfield just gives you so much more protection. It also gets the best out of Mason Mount, where I think, you know, when he plays in the number eight position, that is where he's at his best. And I think, as I said, I would expect to see Kai Havertz playing as the another uh, number eight, probably over Kovacic, which would be a bit of a, a surprise thing as he was player of the season last year. But I think what we're seeing is the 4-3-3 is, is the most balanced. But that takes it quite interesting into the Spurs game, where they had real success with three at the back against Mourinho last year. So, you know, he will chop and change. We've seen that under Lampard all see, all, all uh, his tenure so far. He will change things up. But I think 4-3-3 three, three is the best way to get the balance out of the whole team so far. Oliver, for all the attacking talent that we've spoken about so far, one name that ha- hasn't come up is that of Callum Hudson-Odoi. Um, it's not that long ago that he seems set to be the, the latest young British star to go and try his hand in the Bundesliga with Bayern Munich reportedly very interested in signing him a couple of years ago before he signed his deal. Um, with all the attacking talent that's arrived at Chelsea in, uh, in the past year, what pathway do you see for hudson Odoi to establish himself in the team? Yeah, it's it's one of those where he just has to take every opportunity he gets. I thought that in the Ren game on, on Tuesday night, I thought he was excellent, actually. And he, he showed a real desire and attitude um, and a lot of character, I thought, in the game, not just going forward, but also defensively. That's kind of been the one thing that that Lampard's really pushed him to do is is to be that sort of defensive winger as well and really support the team going backwards. I think that was something that Lampard was slightly critical of him at times, sort of hinting that he wasn't working hard enough um, on that side of his game to really be a top winger because that's so important for a lot of these coaches now it's not just about what you do uh you know going forward and that's why Mason Mount played so often on the wing as well because he wanted that sort of extra defensive side of it um and that's kind of the key I mean it's just about taking his chances I think that you know he's he's a fantastic talent I watched it a lot live when he was sort of coming through the youth ranks um you know even when he was 16 16 17 and he was ripping under 23 sides apart. You know, he he is a ex- very, very good talent, as we've seen for England under-21s as well. Um, it's about getting that chance and, and taking it. And and hopefully Lampard, when he does, you know, get the chance and he does very well, keeps with him and doesn't just go back, to, fall back to the sort of the, the new signings, if they're, even if they're not performing well. I think that can be a danger for, for a manager. You know, you've got a brand new signing, even if they're not playing at the top of their game, they still keep playing them. And I don't think that will happen. I think that Hudson Odoi, if he does, you know, really show what he showed on Tuesday night and carries on, then he could get that start in a in the spot. And also, we know, you know, injuries can play a massive part over the course of a season. So, no doubt, who will get some chances? Um, you touched on already the um, the reshaping of the defence and uh, the the improvements shown there as as a new signings of Bedadin and Mendy being chief among them. Uh, just going to give you a few 
stats which kind of show the improvement that Chelsea have had so far. In the first five games of the Premier League season, most of which Kepa played, there was five defensive errors which led to to chances for the opponents. There's only been one in the game since. And in those first five games, they underperformed their XG against four out of the five times. uh, And they've only done it once since. Uh, Who do you think is... Who is deserving of most credit for the improved performance of that defence? Is it Mendy? Is it Silva? Is it, as you were saying, maybe Kante being able to to, to play fully fit in a, in a maybe more fitting system? Who deserves most credit for Chelsea having improved the one glaring weakness that they had? Uh, without saying on the fence of the question, I think all three of them really, <laughs> really to, to, to go with. I mean, look, they've all brought something um, different that, that Chelsea just didn't have last season. I think... Mendy has looked so secure and calm on the ball with his feet. He's also, he's got, you know, that extra height advantage that Kepa doesn't have. And he's just got that authority in the box. I think that's brought a real calmness to the defence. They know that they've got a guy behind them who they can trust so far. You know, he's he's hardly put a foot wrong. I think what Thiago Silva just brings you is just that extra calmness. Um, you know, his absolute confidence in what he does. You know, we talked about the fact that maybe he, he was a, a guy that might struggle in the Premier League at 36. Well, when you've got the sports speed of brain that he does, he reads the game so well that a lot of Premier League strikers are struggling to to play against him. And that also brings out the best of Kurt Zuma as well. That's the partnership we've seen a lot this year is Kurt Zuma and Thiago Silva. And Zuma was a guy who had a lot of mistakes in him last season. And, you know, during his time at Stoke and Everton on loan is kind of something that they've tried to hope that he would put right. But having Thiago Silva in there next to him just has brought out an absolute calmness in him as well. So they both deserve a massive amount of credit. I have to say, I think I, I would say that probably the Mendy factor has really, has really been a, the biggest surprise I would say for, for Chelsea fans and, and probably the one that they would give most credit to because he has just been such a calming influence and a guy that a lot of Chelsea fans probably didn't even know this time, sort of six months ago. Oliver, Chelsea were also linked with plenty of players they didn't sign uh, in the summer, most notably Declan Rice, who was still reportedly a target right up to the end of the transfer window. Can you see them going back for anybody in January um, to perhaps have a run at the league? I do think it will depend on a couple of things, obviously. I think the first will depend on where they are injury-wise. You know, last season they did have quite a few injuries here and there, and obviously we've got a busy schedule coming up. So, you know, this time last season... Going into January, it was clear that that Chelsea wanted a striker, which is why they were linked with Dries Mertens and Edinson Cavani as well as a short-term option. I think the other one will be if they can ship players out. I think that was the, that was one of the big reasons why Declan Rice never came through, even though there was interest. Obviously, Chelsea were very keen on him, but we know that West Ham were never going to let him go for cheap. You know, talks of eighty million pounds might seem extreme. Uh, for a, for a Declan Rice, but that is what West Ham would have demanded because he is their key player, absolutely a guy that could have been the difference between them battling for relegation and, and being comfortable in the Premier League. So if they can move some players on, I mean, we're talking about potentially, you know, Tamori going out on loan. There's Marcus Alonso and Emerson who hardly played, potentially even Jorginho as well, if there's a bidder for, for him, if they're going to bring in a guy like Declan Rice. Then, yeah, I would say that that's probably the only area. I mean, it might depend... On, on what does happen with injuries and where they are, but and also Olivier Giroud's situation as well. We've seen how key he was against Rennes, and, and, but he wants to play in the Euros, and Didier Deschamps has made it clear that he needs to be playing games. But 
Yeah, mm. so there there will be some movement. There will always be plenty of links with Chelsea, no doubt. But I would say the one big target is probably still Declan Rice. But whether that can happen in January, it's it's very doubtful. I would I would have to say. One guy we haven't um, spoken about yet, and he kind of often gets overlooked, um, especially with the arrivals of of Ziyech, Werner, and Havertz during the summer, um, is Christian Pulisic, and. Obviously, he's had a lot of bad luck with injuries, um, but it feels like he's been around a long time now. But he's still only twenty-two, um, and watching Chelsea, especially after the um, operation restart, he was probably the, the closest we've seen to someone like Eden Hazard in the Chelsea side. Um, like he already has thirty-four caps for America. Like he's well on his way to being a centurion internationally. Um, there's a lot of expectation and hype around him um, being in a pretty decent up-and-coming US side. Where does he fit in at Chelsea? Like, is he seen as a potential superstar in their ranks as, you know, the number 10, the guy who can fill, uh, eventually fill the boots of, of Eden Hazard and, and take Graham's by the scruff of the neck? Because it certainly seems like he has all the ability in the world if he can just keep himself fit. Oh, absolutely. I, I completely agree. He, he can be a, a standout player for Chelsea. He really can. If, if he can get a good long run of games as you say, fit, because that's been the real issue. I mean, it kind of crept in in his last season at Dortmund. Um, you know, his his first season at Chelsea, he had his issues as well. And he just, he's one of those players that is so dynamic that you need his body to be just as secure as, as it can be. And it doesn't feel like at the moment that's where he's at. You know, he gets a lot of hamstring injuries. Um, he obviously picked up the one in the FA Cup final, which he returned from and then, He's picked up another hamstring injury just before the Burnley game where he had to withdraw um, before the match started. And it is just a frustration because, you know, if he gets a run of games, as he did after the, as you say, after the Premier League restarted, he can be a, a match winner for Chelsea. He can absolutely mm. change things around. He can be the guy that that, as, that can can fulfil sort of the the boots of Eden Hazard, which is not an easy feat, that's for sure. But, um, you know, it's a shame because you don't want to forget about him at all because he's... He, he can be a superstar and he's obviously the superstar of the USA team. Um, he's massive for Chelsea in a marketing sense as well, trying to break mm. America and, and, you know, making sure they're the number one team in America. So, you know, he's got more than that, though. He is a he is a fantastic player and you just kind of hope that these injuries aren't something that, that continue throughout his career, as we have seen, obviously, with some players in the past. Obviously, it's pretty difficult to gauge the mood of a fan base when um, there's nobody in the stadiums. But I suppose after last year's kind of free hit for Lampard, expectations were quite dampened um, with the transfer embargo, etc. And now that they've started the season so well, have expectations kind of returned to the norm for Chelsea fans? Like, are they looking at the squad and their form and, you know, thinking that we should be in conversation for the Premier League title? Um, or maybe even the Champions League title, like is that kind of back to where they are after that last last year's um, kind of uh, red-shirted season for Lampard? Yeah, absolutely. I think if you look at the squad, there's no reason why they shouldn't be contenders for the Premier League, especially when we're talking about a Premier League season that's already thrown up a lot of random results. And we know it's not going to be a season like we've had previously. It doesn't look at the moment like there's going to be you know, front runners to absolutely run away with it. It could be very, very tight this year, which is great to see. Everyone wants to see a tight Premier League title race and and Chelsea should be in the mix. I mean, you just look at the game, for example, at Wren on Tuesday night and they bring off 
you know, they bring on on the pitch, you know, Giroud, Kante, two World Cup winners, um, Kai Havertz as well coming on. Reese James came on late. You know, these are these are top quality players they have now throughout mm. the squad. And if they stay fit, you know, the schedule shouldn't be too much of an issue. They've got enough quality players there. Um, and I think that was the most impressive thing about the summer was the fact that they brought in players that were going to have a big impact on the first team, not just squad players, not just guys that, you know, could be around and fill fill some spaces that they've done kind of in the past and which is why they've never kicked on, um, which is kind of something that Antonio Conte said in a recent interview. Um, but they, they've really brought in players that can that can push things on. So Chelsea fans are very optimistic, quietly optimistic, I think. <laughs> I mean, nobody's getting quite <laughs> carried away just yet. And I think Champions League title might be one step too far. But I do think, you know, there is a real feeling that, you know, if they don't get top four, that's a massive, massive disappointment on this season. And they should be in and around the title chase coming towards sort of April, May. Um, and, and you know, see what happens with the rest of the teams because Liverpool are struggling with injuries and City haven't looked quite at their best. So, yeah, there's definitely some optimism for sure. They have a big challenge coming up now on Sunday with Jose Marino coming back to Stamford Bridge and... A win for Chelsea would leapfrog Spurs in the table and I'm sure Frank would love nothing more than, than getting one over his old boss. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he did pretty well against him last year with a couple of wins and he, he certainly had his number. Um, as I was saying before, it's, it's quite interesting to see how he sets up his Chelsea team because they look so solid mm. in a 4-3-3, but you know, does he go back to what he did last year? And, and it worked brilliantly against Spurs with three at the back. Um, it really sort of nullified any attack they had and and it worked well going forward as well. So that's going to be a really interesting sort of tactical choice that Lampard has to mull over, obviously, as well, that, you know, they will have had an extra couple of days rest uh, compared to Spurs, who play Ludogorets in the uh, Europa League, even though I'm sure Mourinho will <clears throat> will sort of move some players around a little bit and rotate. But, yeah, a huge game. And I think this is a real test. I think this is, you know, we talk about the good form that Chelsea have been in, but if you look at some of the some of the teams they have played, they've, they've been teams that, you know, they should be beating, really. Um, this is their biggest test uh, with that form going into it and, and sort of, you know, to take on Spurs. And if they can beat Spurs, that'll be a real marker for where they are and, and how far they could potentially go this season. Great stuff, Oliver. Chelsea, definitely a, a big side to keep an eye on this season. Thanks for coming on the show tonight. No worries. Thanks for having me, guys.